Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights, as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. So welcome to another episode of the Swinglinese podcast, and in this episode I'm with Adam, and Adam is the group CEO of Platinum Heritage. Hi. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so yeah, first, can you tell the listeners a little bit about Platinum Heritage and what do you guys do? Sure. Well, the Platinum Heritage Group is a tourism group. So we're what, what in the industry is called an inbound tourism group. So we don't sell packages or holidays out of the UAE. Um, we look after guests once they come into the country and give them outstanding experiences. So we have three divisions of the Platinum Heritage Group. Um, Platinum Heritage is probably the most famous. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the safaris we operate in the 1950s Land Rovers inside the desert in a more African-style safari, so no dune bashing, none of that kind of stuff. Um, out to kind of explore the desert, look at the animals, and understand the Bedouin traditions of the desert. Uh, we also have a luxury division where we use the modern Range Rovers inside the property of one of the royal family. This is more about spoiling yourself in the desert. So mm-hmm. uh, six-course um, menu from our chefs, yeah. private entertainment, private gazebo. So this is like luxury in the desert. So we have mm-hmm. luxury and we have authentic. So the platinum is the luxury, heritage is the authentic. Um, the other division we have is balloon adventures. Uh, if you've ever looked up at the sky in the morning out in the mm-hmm. desert, you'll see our balloons flying mm-hmm. around. Um, beautiful, beautiful place to fly. Uh, we've also started something very interesting, which is flying falcons from a balloon. Uh, which yeah, is I've the seen that. Yeah, 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 it's actually the only place in the world that you can do that. And it was just a, an unusual combination of having contact with some of the best pilots in the world and some of the best falconers in the world. Getting oh, everyone, combining in, it. getting yeah. everyone in a room and saying, "I wonder if this is possible," mm. and of course it was. Um, the last division we have is on sea, so we have air, land, and sea. Mm. Um, we have these little boats called Heroes in a company uh, we called Hero Odyssey. So this is uh, self-drive boats, uh, really nice. They're about the same, similar kind of speed to a jet ski, but really safe and stable. Um, so guests can cruise along the coastline mm. of Dubai in these nice, nice little boats, driving mm. themselves rather than sitting in the back of a boat. Mm. Yeah, so some d- d- different products than uh, the, the normal ones that we have seen in Dubai in the past. So, so the balloon, for example, are you the only one operating now? Or? Um, there's three companies. There's a, mm. Both of the other companies are very small. Mm. They operate smaller balloons and smaller quantities. So mm. we're definitely the, the biggest guy in the room. Mm. Okay, excellent. And how long have you uh, had this company? How, how long has it been now? We, we started Platinum Heritage at the end of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, Balloon Adventures has been running for 13 years now. Um, so in 2015, we acquired two-thirds of the company. Ah, okay. Mm. So that was an acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started in February of 2018, mm. uh, operations for Hero Odyssey. So mm. each company has kind of come at different stages. Kind of mm. Every two or three mm. years, we start something new. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's interesting because we're managing three companies at three different stages of their life. Mm. Yeah, so and a little bit different, like flying and then desert and then sea, you know. Yeah, I think between all three, we deal with all government departments. There's yeah, not a government yeah. department we don't have some interaction yeah, with. I now. can imagine, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, what's your background? How, how did you get into this? Well, I was born in Australia mm-hmm. and um, I've, uh, I've always been interested in business um, and I, I kind of, it just happened. Mm. I didn't really consciously decide to go into business. Mm. Um, 
My father was a journalist, so we used to move around uh, doing court reporting. And, um, so we kind of moved from state to state around in Australia. So I was born in Brisbane, mm -hmm. and at a very young age, we moved to Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And then very shortly after that, we moved to Canberra. And we knew that that was a temporary posting. We were going to move again. So by the time I moved to Canberra, I said goodbye to all my friends in Brisbane, mm -hmm. all my friends in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I knew that I was going to have to say goodbye to my friends mm -hmm. in Canberra. I was like, I'm not going to bother with friends. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just going to yeah. like spend the next couple of years chilling out, doing yeah, my own yeah. thing. So on the weekends, I started mowing lawns. Mm -hmm. So I would mow, mow lawns, especially for older neighbors mm -hmm. who had their own equipment. Because I was too young. I was seven mm -hmm. years old. I couldn't move all this equipment around. So I did a deal and I said, look, I'll mow your lawn mm -hmm. and I'll do the edges and I'll do everything. But I need your lawn mower and I need your oh, rake okay, and so, I need yeah, your yeah. equipment. But I'll do it cheaper. Yeah. It actually got so busy that I needed to recruit the neighbors. Mm, uh, they were, their father was in the army. Mm. So it was two boys, actually older than me, both mm. of them. Um, and eventually we started recruiting guys mm. from the neighborhood. So I would walk around basically recruiting, mm. uh, signing up contracts and recruiting people to go out and do the work for me. So, so that's the entrepreneurial way, because if you just do it yourself, you're changing time for money. But when you're actually right. recruiting, uh, have a team around it. That's, uh, and I, I, I didn't understand the concepts mm. of it. For me, it was just my, my time was best served mm. signing people up. Um, it was an avoidance of work. It wasn't trying to make my life easy. It just seemed like the best use of my time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was quite funny. I don't think my parents ever realized that it was a business. It, it was just keeping me busy. Um, you know, Australia in the early early 80s is um, was very much, you know, we would leave in the morning and our parents would expect us back sometime after dark, you know. What we did in between, mm. they probably never really knew, you know. Mm -hmm. We would hop on a bike at seven in the morning, be back at seven at night. With uh, a chunk of cash. Well, in this case, yeah, <laughs> with some cash. So the first time that really occurred, I remember my parents fighting. And um, I, I walked up and I think I was maybe 12 by then and I'd stopped for, for a few years. And they said, yeah, we're just having some financial issues. You know, the mm. starter of the car had broken and my dad needed it to get to work and they didn't have enough money for it. So I said, it's okay, let me help you out. And they were like, it's okay, it's <laughs> okay, son, you know. I went to my room and I got a shoebox full of cash. Oh, really? And they were shocked because they'd never really uh -huh. known <laughs> that it was a, 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 an yeah. actual profitable venture. So. <laughs> That kind of set me on the pathway of wanting to go into business. Yeah. Um, I, I graduated high school not really knowing what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to study law, do something different. Um, after university, uh, studying university for a little while, um, I became really disillusioned. So I did what most Australians did and I went backpacking. Mm -hmm. So I spent a year and a half traveling off the beaten track um, and really fell in love with travel. Mm. So from that point onwards, I realized that I wanted to do something different. Mm. Um, being young and going to places that most people didn't go to, um, I think made the difficult things easy because I'd already done that. You know, I went to, I actually, I actually kind of told my, my mum a bit of a white lie. I told her I was going to work in a resort in the Greek islands. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and I'll be out of contact for the next six months. Uh -huh. Which somehow she accepted. Again, I guess yeah. the world's changed. Yeah, it was before and, um, the days of mobile phones. So and internet yeah, and things exactly, like that where yeah. they can actually kind of see where I am. Yeah. But I left, I left and I started traveling through places like Syria and Jordan and Afghanistan. Oh, okay. And, um, so really off the beaten track. Yeah, not the into, normal. Yeah, I went into Sudan. Mm. I went to India and up north into to Nepal and Mongolia, across, all the way across Mongolia into mm. China. And 
So I was really off the beaten track mm. by myself, you know, yeah. as an 18 year old by oh, myself. Wow, so yeah. I think it really taught me just a love of ex mm. exploration and exploring the world. So I came back and I changed my degree to international business with okay. a major in tourism. And at the end of my degree, I loved the idea of cruise lines because mm. I thought I don't have to pay tax, I don't have to pay bills, mm. but I get to travel the world and work out what I want to do. So I did that for eight years and halfway along that journey I, I discovered the shore excursion department okay. and I absolutely loved so it. Where were you? All over the world? or where? All over the world, mm. yeah. yeah. Um, I mean now I, I, I've kind of lost count but I've I've been to about 130 something countries. Oh, okay, okay, wow. Um, I think 137, but mm. I have to go back and count again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got to see what people liked around the world, mm. what worked, what didn't, what was authentic, what was inauthentic, what made money, what didn't make money. Of course, I was running a department, so making money was important. Um, so I really fell in love with the idea mm. of providing experiences as a as a profession. Mm. You know, um, it was. Mm. You know, it's it's different, I guess, for me, providing a service that people are. It's changing people's lives as far mm. as giving them lifelong memories. Um, for me, it was it was. Mm. I, I had to pinch myself that I was getting paid to do these really cool things <laughs> yeah. around the world. But do you think that, that move, moving a lot of times when you were uh, when you were young that that kind of put you on the path to travel? I think so. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was it was normal to move. Mm. Um, And I still remember a conversation after I did my first my first trip overseas, coming back after a year and a half, sitting down with my friends, and they actually said, "Like, why don't you like Australia?" Mm. And that that concept hadn't even occurred to me. It was never about not liking Australia. It was about you know, two hundred plus countries in the mm. world. Why would I not want to explore mm. that? Why would I not want to understand different cultures and mm. different perspectives mm. and Why would I? Why would I not? You know, um, some of those friends to this date has still haven't left Australia, and yeah. and that I don't understand. Mm, yeah. So I think yeah, it, growing up early, I guess I was never scared to move. Mm, I was never scared yeah. to pack pack up everything I own and move. Mm. So when did you uh, end up in Dubai? So after that, you spent eight years with the cruise cruise liners, and yeah, the eight year was. Halfway through, I actually got off and I, I started a company in Central America, mm -hmm. uh, in Belize. Mm -hmm. um, I'd seen that the services were really poor, so I'd, I'd talked a couple of people into starting a company. Um, in my naivety, with no shareholding of my own, I came through as the general manager. So we started running bus. We had 35 motor motor coaches for yeah, the cruise so industry, catering the the the, the cruise for the cruises. Ships, yeah. yeah, they were using school buses and things like that. Mm. And I was like, no, it's not good enough. So I talked to a Canadian operator who wasn't using his buses in the winter. Of course, too mm. cold for all those buses in winter. So we drove them down to Belize with the idea of oh, okay. doing it as a temporary uh. thing. But they ended up buying the buses and transferring mm. them all. So we drove them from Canada, from Halifax in Canada all the way through the States, through Mexico, into Belize. Ah, nice. Um, and that was the school of hard knocks as well. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, a young Australian in Central America, um, idealistic but very naive. Mm. Um, I, you know, I needed full-time bodyguards. So I was shot at a couple of times. Oh, wow. I ended up in court cases against my partners because they weren't paying the bills. So it was it was definitely business the hard way. It, mm. wasn't, it wasn't an easy, idyllic mm. idea, um, idea of business. It was the school of hard knocks, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah, Literally, it sounds like it. Yeah. So, what, some what are the like main stories from that time? That's like, wow, this crazy times. Well, I remember. I remember. Um, I had to 
my, I had to borrow a friend's car um, because they always have speed bumps there and they're never painted, they never change. So I had this terrible habit of going over speed bumps at full speed and doing damage to my, my rental cars. Yeah. So I borrowed my friend's car and funny enough, I was actually going to meet with the prime minister's brother at the time. And just before I got to the capital um, called Belmopan, um, I slowed down for a speed bump. I'd learned my lesson. And I thought young kids had thrown rocks against the side of my car and looked and I couldn't see anyone and, and kept on driving, no, not changing my driving behavior or anything. And I remember once I arrived, I opened the door and I could see all these holes in the oh, side wow. of the door in a, clo in a close formation and looked and then I could start to see all these pellets in the back of my seat and realized that someone with a, maybe a 12 gauge shotgun to shoot, uh, had yeah. actually shot straight into my door. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. So, which is, you know, young kid from Australia, you're not expecting yeah, that kind of yeah. stuff. And um, how was the expats? Was there a lot of expats in Belize, at the, or were you? No. no. So you <laughs> no, were a target, really. I would assume. Yeah, right? of like, course. You know, know, guy, a guy wearing a, a suit, not yeah. not a suit and tie, but a, a button-up shirt and yeah. pants. Yeah. You know, pre professionally presenting myself yeah. to the cruise lines yeah. in Central America, where you know I was obviously obviously standing out. Yeah. yeah um, so I had a few kind of nasty situations like that. Yeah. 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 So four years. In Belize? I was there for two, two yeah. until we were able to sell the company off. Mm. Um, we had some, some crazy adventures. I ended up getting locked up twice. Um, I was set up once going across, and everyone says they were set up, but I really <laughs> was. Um, someone had paid the, the, the Mexican authorities off when we were crossing the border in one of our buses to take our bus. And um, they had no reason to and they had no authority to, but... You know that part of the world this is how it works so um, we started getting introductions of you need to meet this person and pay them to get your bus out so we mm. would pay and meet this person and then they would escalate it no it's a really serious problem so we need to meet with this guy so pay a little bit more and mm. da, 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 da. kept on escalating and we're like why don't we just pay off the guy at the police impound mm. and take the bus you know so we we kind of it was really like a like a spy movie so we went we paid off the guy from the police impound who gave us like a 15 minute window. We took the bus and away we went, headed to the border. So of course, once we made it through, they arrested us again for stealing the bus. Uh, but of course the bus was never legally seized. So I- You stole your own bus. So I claimed, I said, do you have any evidence that it was ever in the police lockup? Yeah. Do you have any charges? Do you have anything? Which they couldn't do. And by this stage, I'd actually kind of made it to the police side. So they had to let us go because there was no evidence that it was ever taken in the first place. Because of course it was all, a rot to try and steal money from us. But mm. for me, it, it, it made me very suspicious from then on, mm. uh, very strategic. Um, instead of naive, I always kind of look at all the angles these days. So, mm. Mm. Um, Lots of lessons. <laughs> it was a hard way to do yeah. it, but it, it made me in, kind of into a chess player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, look I mean, at all those, the strategic those, angles. You know? Yeah, and those hard times, uh, that's uh, what forms you, and uh, you can take a lot of lessons from that. Yeah, and I think it, it goes a long way towards managing stress. Mm. Um, I think when you've been to an extreme, like, you know, being shot at, um, your business partners trying to set you up mm. and things like that, or competition, I had it from all angles, um, nothing really stresses me out now. Mm. So You haven't I, been shot at in Dubai? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> I'm so. hoping not to. But, um, you know, so when, yeah. when we deal with a difficult situation, rather than get stressed out and, and look at how we're going to do this, it's a calm conversation mm. where we sit down and, and look at how we're going to deal mm. with the situation mm. and um, so it's really kind of informed how I make my decisions moving mm. forward.
Interesting. So did you manage to sell sell the company in Belize? We did, yeah. Mm. Um, I got to the stage where um, I just wanted to get out alive. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Um, So we did a deal with a a local partner and Mm. they basically bought us out and away Mm. I went. Mm. And you went to? Uh, I went to Canada with a Canadian partner. Mm -hmm. Um, I helped him um, structure his tours so that he could sell those to cruise lines Mm -hmm. we ended up selling three cruise lines in seven ports in Canada Mm -hmm. Um, so I felt kind of job done Mm -hmm. and but that I didn't want to live in Canada that was not what I wanted to do yeah too cold (laughs) too many winters Um, so I did that for for two seasons and then I packed up and and took off yeah back to ships actually back to ships okay okay Mm. so and then and then uh, I was I was work passing through Dubai Mm. And I'd mentioned to uh, the guys who are running our tours in Dubai that I think I've had enough. Eight years on ships is, is driving me crazy. Mm. Um, and I'd like to relocate. Mm. Um, they were part of the Emirates group, Arabian Adventures. Uh, okay. And they actually said, why don't you apply for a job? We're looking mm. for an operations manager. Mm. So I applied for a job as an operations manager and, uh, okay. and got the job. And when was this? Um, this was back in 2008. 2008, yeah. yeah. So... Yeah. So it was a very quick interview process, quick transition. I'd already got off ships, like yeah. literally, you know, already handed my notice in. And that was in a month later, moved mm. to Dubai. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how long were you the operations manager in uh, Raven Adventures? I was, I was there until uh, the middle of 2012. Mm-hmm. So I was there for about four and a half years. Mm. Um, it was great to understand how the, how the industry worked. Um, but for me, it was really important to see how the whole industry reacted to the global economic crisis mm, yeah I was back yeah I was reading those times so. yeah so I'd seen the peak and then I'd, I'd uh, I was I used to do day trading for stocks and mm-hmm. I was on ships and, mm. and real estate investment so I was actually looking to invest in real estate and so I was looking at New York I was looking at London mm. and I started kind of seeing some some worrying trends um, and then of course it came to Dubai as well so I realized that Dubai wasn't especially targeted but it was it was hit pretty hard Mm. um and i saw instead of increasing the level of service and increasing marketing and trying to make yourself more attractive um everyone went very very cheap Mm. to try and capture market cost and uh, yeah and i i'd come from a luxury cruise line and i i thought no there's enough people Mm. out there that that going cheap is not always the answer Mm. maybe going the other way might be so within within my the organization I was in, I was saying, like, we should be careful about discounting because once you discount, it's very difficult to go back up again. You, you, it's like a, like a game of poker. You've shown mm. your hand. Mm. You've shown you can go cheap. It's very difficult to say, yeah, but now I need to go expensive again. Mm. Um, so I, th- I was strongly advising them against doing that. I knew my costs and I knew we were basically just eating straight into our margin. Um, and I couldn't shave any more costs without impacting the operation. Mm which eventually we started to do. So mm. we, start, we, we canceled driver training, we started getting cheaper food, we started delaying improvements to, to the infrastructure. Mm. And I really started seeing services going down and it was actually something I was embarrassed to, to put my name to. Um, so there was a gentleman that was working with Bassam mm. who was kind of running the safari department. Um, we'd put our heads together and he, he agreed very strongly with me that there was a need for something better. Mm. Um, we'd looked at multiple things that had, we had suggested. Um, we knew that there was a small fleet of 1950s Land Rovers and it was such an engaging experience mm. that we thought that was a great idea, but we were told that was a bad idea. 
we'd looked at doing something more authentic without alcohol, without all the, the belly dancing and tenura mm -hmm. dancing that's inauthentic to this area. Mm -hmm. We were told, no, this is what tourists want. So we decided, you know what, let's put all these bad ideas together and let's try and form a, form a company based mm. on bad ideas. <laughs> so we started Platinum Heritage mm. and uh, we can joke about it now, but at the time, everyone was laughing at us. Mm. You know, nobody's going to want to be in a 60-year-old four-wheel drive with no air conditioning in Dubai. Nobody's going to show up if there's no alcohol. Everyone wants to see belly dancing. Everyone wants to see tenura dancing. Everyone wants an international buffet Nobody wants mm. what you're offering. It's not going to work. Laughably so, you know. So we started off and, um, and we knew that there would be a small niche. We had confidence mm. that there would be a small niche. Um, and that small niche over the last six years has just grown and grown and grown. Yeah, uh, no, and I mean, your brand is uh, respectable in the region. Everyone knows Platinum Heritage now, you know. So you've done a great job in these six years. The, the, the day of the first, uh, your first uh, tour out... Do you remember how, how was that day? The first well, time you sent out one of the cars with the guests. Well, funny enough, the first day of operation, nobody booked. So we were like, <laughs> we're ready. And nothing happened. So we didn't actually operate, I think, for the first two or three days. Yeah. So uh, when the first guest showed up, um, our camp was beautiful. And I said mm. to Basam, you know, we need to make our camp beautiful during the day. Um, it has to be environmentally friendly. It has to be authentic. So our camp was beautiful. So I remember these guests showing up. And they were looking around in amazement. They were like, this is so beautiful. Mm. But when does everyone else get here? <laughs> and we're like, you're it. You know, sorry to say it, but you're it. So, mm. of course, our numbers started off very small. Mm. Um, we look back at the numbers now. We wonder how we're still here mm. and didn't have a heart attack in that first mm. year. Um, but what encouraged us was every month was better than the last. Mm. Okay. We just so saw constant, constant yeah. improvement. Yeah. And, you know, I think we had 248 guests our first operating mm. month, mm. Um, which is what we can do in a day mm. these days. Mm. But then, you know, the next month was close to double. And then the month after that was like 50% higher again. So we were seeing not, not insignificant jumps. Mm. It was like quite significant jumps in those okay. numbers. Yeah. Um, and of course, we, then we hit our first summer, which is always, yeah. always <laughs> difficult. Especially with open top Land Yeah, Rovers. of course. Yeah, how long? Um, how long is the season for you guys with the the Land Rovers? Um, well, June, July, August are really the the difficult months. Mm. Um, but of course, what people don't realize is that out in the desert, as soon as the sun disappears, so does the heat. Mm -hmm. um, so if, as you're driving along with a bit of a breeze, it's actually quite pleasant. It's mm. not bad at all. Mm. Um, so we you, just had you to run make, it also in the summer. Yeah, we yeah, run it. It's actually quite it. nice. Yeah. Um, these days we run an air condition option mm. and almost everyone who books the air condition option is thinking it's too hot actually change back to the Land Rovers once they're in the desert and they realize how comfortable really? it is. Yeah. So, but of course in the first season mm. nobody knew that mm. and so the, the sales were really mm. low. Mm. Um, so it was quite a challenge. Mm. Um, but I think what we did as well, we didn't just offer a different type of service. We were really trying to change people's perspe perspective of the desert. Um, we, we basically did everything differently at once. We were out there on the radio, in conferences, in um, basically anywhere that would listen, talking about the dangers of dune bashing. Mm. Um, people weren't dune bashing or still not dune bashing because they don't care about the environment. They're dune bashing because they don't know that it does any harm. Um, we knew that it, it did. Even our previous company, we knew that it was causing a lot of damage. Um, about 90% of the animals in the desert are subterranean and nocturnal. Mm -hmm. So they live under the ground and only come out at night. So during the day, you see these big dunes 
you think, no harm, no foul, I'm not doing anything wrong. But, um, you know, all of the, all of the you know, flora and fauna basically live at the bottom of the dunes. Uh, even things like desert foxes and desert hares actually live in the side of the dunes. They, they bury themselves in mm-hmm. and have a breathing hole. So mm-hmm. when you're driving sideways down dunes, you're literally burying these animals alive. Okay. By shifting the sound down to the bottom of the dunes, that's where the trees and the growth can take up. But you're burying that. So you're, you're literally killing the habitat mm-hmm. for all these animals. So we started trying to educate the market about trying to preserve the environment, trying to run a more sustainable operation. Um, we'd run the first solar-powered camp. We did the ca- first camp with no alcohol. We did the first camp with without an international buffet, the first camp with Emirati food. We tried everything literally at once. It wasn't mm. one small change, mm. like everything was different. So mm. it was a completely new experience. Mm. So it and took a while. The, yeah, how was the respondent from the, from the market? It took a while. It, yeah. it, it was a real, you know, um, we always say we don't sell our product. We educate people about what we do um, because it really is an education, mm. you know, about why, why is it more authentic? Why is it more ecologically sustainable? Um, and why is that important? Mm. So it took yeah. a while for everyone yeah, to catch on. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, starting a new business like that, of course, there's ups and downs. There's lots of challenges. What, what are some of the challenges that, like, tough times you've been going through and uh, some lessons maybe that you can share with the listeners? Yeah, well, I, I used to joke because I put everything on the line for the business. So I'd, I'd been investing in real estate. I sold all of my properties and I used to, you know, see... Uh, you know, one of our, we had G-Wagons and we have Range Rovers now. We'd see a G-Wagon riding along and I'm like, wow, I can see one of my apartments driving down the road, you know. <laughs> um, we'd sit on a cushion and I'd say, you know, this is this is my TV from home. <laughs> so it, it was really personal. Yeah. Um, and I probably took it too personally. Mm-hmm. Um, any Anything even remotely negative on TripAdvisor um, was, was a personal insult oh, and okay. a personal yeah. affront. Because it was your baby that you built up. And yeah, Yeah, and it, it was actually, uh, that was quite stressful. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because something that you find is very special and mm. something you, you find you're really changing the industry and protecting the environment and you're honoring the culture and heritage. For someone to not see that was, was quite mm. disappointing, you mm. know. Um, what I've realized in the six years since is that, you know, there's a lot of people on TripAdvisor that are not very sensible. Mm, mm. Um, you always get that no matter what yeah, business yeah, you have. Yeah. Um, you know, there's funny cases of people giving, you know, the Grand Canyon one-star reviews and, <laughs> and giving the Eiffel Tower one-star yeah, reviews yeah. and the Taj Mahal one-star <laughs> reviews. I mean, you know, you, you, you've got yeah. to take it with a bit of a grain of salt, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and we've had reviews about it's too sandy. Mm. Um, we've had <laughs> the desert. we've had reviews. Yeah, yeah. That, it's a bit too sandy. You just scratch yeah, your head and think, please, you know. Yeah. Uh, we've had one star review, for example, about someone complaining about the way that the person sitting opposite them was eating. Mm. <laughs> Com- things completely yeah. out of your control, yeah. and unfortunately, you've you, once you run long enough, you realize that you've just got to kind of take mm. that. Yeah. Um, I, I do answer my reviews with with. A, a bit of humor <laughs> yeah okay um you know we are an independent business so i'm allowed to kind of say what i'm uh, okay yeah, say there's what's no on corporate my mind. structure behind it <laughs> there's no corporate messaging <laughs> yeah. behind it we can kind of be a little bit more, okay little i look forward to go and look at your trip advice reviews then <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um yeah. but you know at the end of the day we feel sorry that you know some people don't see the big picture mm-hmm. of what we're really trying to do um so that was a that was a big cause of stress and i think for me i actually 
ended up passing that responsibility to somebody else, not because I couldn't do it, but because it was a big cause of stress. Mm. Um, because I was taking it so personally. Mm, uh, okay, I know that's. Uh, what about building a brand? Because I believe that uh, Platinum Heritage is a brand in the industry. What what, uh, what lessons uh, can you share from building that brand? You know. Yeah, and and this is probably even more important with certain markets. For example, um, brand awareness for say the Chinese market. Um, they're very aspirational buyers initially with material things, but now even with travel. So becoming an aspirational brand mm. um, and uh, and carrying that through with all of your services is very important. Um, helps with your staff. It helps with everything else. So mm. for us, we our brand identity determines who we hire, uh, determines kind of how we interact with our staff, mm. the training that we have involved, um, the branding on our cars, everything. Mm. Mm. It's about not just you know our logo and how we look but like who are we as a company what do we stand for i guess it needs to look good on social media for them when they share it to their friends back home that look i'm doing this yeah and if it looks everything looks nice and luxury then that's well, aspiration well, remember, is there in the brand I don't think. well i remember one one thing that we wanted to do was we wanted the image of a 1950s land rover in the desert to be an icon of dubai so mm. someone sees that and says that's dubai mm. um the problem with you know a white land cruiser in the desert it could be in Qatar, it could be in Kuwait, it could be in Namibia, it could be in Oman, it could be anywhere. Um, so we really wanted to be, you see a 1950s Land Rover in the desert, you know it's Dubai. Mm. So, you know, just like a Burj Al Arab or a Burj Khalifa, that's an iconic image of Dubai. And I think we're starting to get there, you know. Mm. Um, mm. You know, we're seeing a lot of support from DTCM, for example, yeah, where they realize that, you know, this is part of our history. Mm. The, the 1950s Land Rover wasn't chosen by mistake. Mm. This was the first four-wheel drive ever introduced into the country. It was the first time that Bedouin culture, uh, Bedouin communities, could start to communicate further than a camel could take them. Mm, mm, mm. So they could start exploring for oil. Mm. They could start trading with mountain tribes or coastal mm. tribes. Could start trading with um, desert tribes. Um, so really, you know, if you were looking at where to draw a line in the history of the UAE, you could almost say the introduction of the 1950s Land Rover was that tipping point. Um, pre 1950s Land Rover and post 1950s Land oh, Rover. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So I think it's uh, an important uh, kind of icon. Yeah. Um, because so, so you have Burj Al Arab, Burj Khalifa, and the Land Rover. That, that should be the, the and and a hot air balloon with a falcon. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> nice. which I think is now very iconic yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, we've massaged that a little bit. Our our most recent balloon is actually a uh, yeah. UAE flag with the Dubai logo across the top. Uh, okay. Um, so that's also becoming quite yeah. iconic. Uh, and, and these things are perfect for social media, you know, for the digital marketing. You know, like, of course, everyone is going to take pictures of that and post on their Instagram. And so it's great. Of course. And mm. we, we, we wanted to kind of give back to Dubai as well. Um, mm. We work very closely with Dubai Tourism. So we thought, let's let's give Dubai Tourism something really juicy that mm. they can promote leading up to 2020. Mm. Where instead of asking them for a financial contribution, let's just do it. And mm. let's help put Dubai on the map mm. around the world. Yeah, that's great. Because yeah, again, yeah. a hot air balloon over the yeah. desert could be anywhere. You know, yeah. if you're not used to this, you see a hot air balloon over the desert, it looks mm. great. But putting Dubai on it. Yeah, yeah, no, it promotes yeah. the, the destination yeah. through the social media channels. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And I yeah. think as an operator, we have a responsibility to do that. Mm. Yep. Um, as an inbound operator, the, the temptation is to sit and wait, um, set up desks in hotels and sit and, and wait for the concierge to book it. Um, but I think we have a responsibility to attract people to this mm. destination um, by giving them different experiences. 
um, things that they can only do in Dubai. Mm. So instead of doing a stopover, they say, you know, but I really like to do this safari. I'd really like to mm. try that balloon experience. Yeah. Um, so try and encourage the 40 million or mm. something people that transit through Dubai to mm. actually come and yeah. stay. I think so, we all have a responsibility yeah. to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you look at the future, I mean, Dubai has very aggressive goals when it comes to attracting tourism. I think 20 million 2020 has been the goal for a long time. And I think they are on track uh, to reach that. So, so where do you see Dubai as, as a destination in the future? If you look at, for example, Europe, a lot of Europeans, if I talk about Sweden, for example, they've been to Dubai a few times. So what can Dubai do to stay competitive and how is the destination looking in the future? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest problems with most destinations is over-tourism. Um, you know, just traveling recently through Europe, you know, you go to places like Barcelona and you go to uh, Florence and Venice it's it's just not that enjoyable anymore mm. because there's so many people um and the problem is that it's a concentration of people on very few sites um i think what dubai has to offer is is such a diversity of offering um that over over tourism on one particular site is not really a problem so where i think places like rome for example just this year reduced the number of buses in certain areas mm -hmm. which is going to reduce the number of tourists to that that site dubai can really have scope to grow the desert is big we can mm -hmm. host a lot of people in the desert there's all these new developments like Le Mer, mm -hmm. like uh, masa al sif or al sif i think they might have mm -hmm. dropped the masa like al sif um like the beach mm -hmm. um then they've got dubai creek harbor mm -hmm. coming up and maidan is growing mm -hmm. um there's all these areas where basically we can start to grow mm, to and diversify each, and have and diversify yeah. you know so if you look at certain de travel destinations it's a place to go for history and culture or mm. it's a place to go for a beach holiday or mm. it's a place to go yeah. for you know adventure mm. and if you I, look I, at I, dubai I see now it, see it now do, or with the, you know the different markets like the north europeans they're coming for the beach and maybe they yeah and the chinese are coming for other things so. shopping exactly. which you can do here. yeah so you, you know, have so the different markets have yeah. something that is attractive for all of them you know like, right so you, so it's not relying on a single kind of thing anymore um you know with with a dubai opera with la pearl with um, you know, this great underground kind of art scene that's going in through our cruise mm. now. You know, there's there's real kind of a cultural identity coming through, mm. a unique cultural identity coming through. Um, the the Shindiga redevelopment, which I'm not sure if you've been out to, which is really interesting. Is it where Queen well. Elizabeth is? Or no? Sorry? Where Queen Elizabeth is? Or no? no, this is where the Shindiga tunnel is. It yeah. used to be called Heritage Village. They've yeah. actually redeveloped that whole area, yeah. um, which is really interesting. And then you've got the textile souk, and then you've got. Yeah the Al-Fahidi district, yeah. and now you've got Al-Sif. So it's this really nice mm. historical core that's coming through. It's so Dubai interesting well. now because the developments are, again, so fast, so it's difficult to it's keep track. It's hard to keep up. Know? Yeah, absolutely. I was in uh, Blue Water Island the other day, but, yeah, there's so many new things coming. So. Right. And <laughs> that's the thing, you know, if you, if you came to Dubai three or four years ago, you could come here and spend a week yeah. and never double up yeah. on the malls you go to, the yeah. areas you go yeah. to, the hotels, the regions. Um, it just it keeps on reinventing itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think if you look at the population of Dubai, it's very small, mm. but it's up there with, you know, the Paris and London's and Bangkok's and and Sydney's and all this that have far greater populations mm. and infrastructure. So the idea one day that Dubai could be a city of 10 million people or something, absolutely it could mm. be. So mm. I don't think we're maxed out as far as population mm. 
Um, there's a lot of space to grow, especially linking Abu Dhabi and Dubai mm. through yeah. Gantut and these areas. Mm. Um, the whole area near DWC has a lot of scope to grow, or Dubai South mm. has a, a lot of space to grow. Um, so I, I still see a city on the move. Mm. Um, there, there are some challenges. There's you know, geopolitical challenges. The US dollar, which we're pegged to, is very strong compared to a lot of the source markets mm. like the euro and the ruble and the rupee and, uh, and the rand and the Australian dollar and pretty mm. much everything. Um, of course, the situation yeah, um, going on right now with, um, with, with Qatar, mm. with Oman, yeah. with mm. Yemen. So we're, we're facing kind of, a, I think, an unprecedented number of issues, most mm. of which are outside of the control of the UAE. Mm. Um, but I have every confidence that we'll survive that. And being a long kind of drawn out, um, what would you say, challenge, I think is maturing the market as well. Mm. Um, you know, back when I first came to Dubai in 2008, pretty much anyone could open up anything. Mm. Um, and as they say, you know, a rising tide gathers all ships. Um, you didn't really have to treat your staff very well. You didn't mm. have to even treat your guests very well. Mm. <laughs> um, you made huge returns, huge return mm. on investment. And I think now it's just maturing. You know, you, mm. you need a good product. You need great marketing. You need to treat your people mm. well. Yeah. You need to hire the best. Mm. You need to treat your guests like, mm. you yeah. know, uh, as good as anywhere in the mm. world. Yeah. Um, and you're building a good brand, building a good business, building a good team. Then you'll survive these kind mm. of um, downturns mm -hmm. and come out much stronger at the other end. Yeah. Um, those that don't treat their staff well or guests well or have any kind of budget controls, they will go out of business. It's a short term, yeah. It's not Which is great. It's, yeah, a, matur exactly. it's a maturing yeah, of the market. Yeah. You know? yeah. Those who deserve to be yeah. in business will be in business. Yeah, those no, who exactly. don't won't. Yeah, absolutely. Just like every other country in the mm. world. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, we come to the end of the show and uh, thank you for all the interesting stories. Uh, do you have any, like, last... Uh, uh, advice for the listeners that are maybe in business in Dubai? What, what advice would you give to them? I think um, one thing I think that I always say to people is, is the, the, the key difference between people that start a business and make it um, isn't necessarily financing and it's not intellect, it's courage. Just to have the courage mm. to do it. Um, I think a lot of people are turned off because they hear all these stories about entrepreneurs that are working seven days a week and working crazy hours and not spending time with their families and things like that. Whereas I think the opposite is true. Mm. Um, you know, time management is very important. Making time for your family, making time for friends, making time for your health. Um, you, you don't have to work seven days a week and burn the candle at both ends. In fact, if you are, you're not doing it right. Mm. You're, not, you're not delegating to your staff properly. You're not empowering your staff to learn. Um, I actually took a mental note when I was starting. Every time my phone rang or I got an email, I was looking at, you know, in, an internal email. This is something my staff don't know. Mm. So this is a problem that I have mm, in training mm, my staff. Mm. So if they're always asking me about this kind of thing, then I need to guide them on that way. Mm. So my idea was... So each phone call will be a lesson, actually. Like, how can we improve the process? Yeah, and, what, yeah. What, what is it? Why are they asking me this mm. and they don't know that themselves? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very um, good way of looking at it. Yeah. So I wanted to train myself out of a job, basically. Mm. Make sure that my whole team can do everything I do mm. yeah. so that they don't need me anymore. Mm. Maybe for guidance and direction mm. and, and vision, but the day-to-day -day working. Mm. That allowed me to, to have enough time when we acquired uh, Balloon Adventures mm. to actually spend time on that. And then doing the same thing. 
what's what in balloon adventures is spending most of my time mm. and then basically trained myself out of that job which allowed me to start hero odyssey mm. so i think um the temptation is always to be hands on to do everything yourself but that temptation keeps you small mm. and um so i think you know the 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 idea of delving into a business doesn't have to be so intimidating um as long as you have a a nice way of managing your time mm. yeah that's great thank you so much for taking the time and sure. uh, look forward to to see your camps sure. uh, because yeah i haven't been myself but i i heard they're beautiful and uh, yeah thank you so much great thank you for your time Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinese with your hosts Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.